do just acknowledge your presence among us, and we thank you for your mercy and grace to us. All of that in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. As a former worship pastor, I do not take for granted the excellence with which our worship teams lead us every week. And I love that we are not a performance-driven church. We, we, want, we, we want from the people who are here on the stage as part of the worship team is to facilitate worship among the body. And when I stand down here on either corner of the, the room and, and just hear you guys sing, it is a blessing to listen to the people of God lift their voices in worship. And uh, yeah, I just had to say that this morning. It's a, it's a good thing. It blesses my heart. So um, so we've, we've been working through this letter from Paul called 1 Corinthians, and we've already explored many diverse topics that come up in the church. And we're dealing with church matters because church matters. It's a big deal to God. We're his bride. He instituted the church. He, he designed that, put that into play. So let's just remember some of where we've been to get some context as we go into this passage this morning. We dealt with the go-to phrase that the Corinthians used to consistently justify themselves. If you'll remember back to that early chapter, all things are permissible for me, right? That was their go-to. And Paul counters that with saying, well, yeah, but not all things are, are lawful or are good for you. And, um, and we talked about the need for spiritual maturity. There, there was a lack of spiritual fathers in the church at Corinth. There wasn't a lot of depth of character. And we, we've dealt with the topic of sexual immorality, Paul's teaching on marriage and fidelity and the responsibilities of marriage. And then this, this current line of thought, all of these topics really go all the way back to, to chapter 5. They're rooted in, in an argument there in chapter 5. Now, many of you have probably heard the old saying, the grass is always greener over the septic tank, somebody said. That's, that's true. That's true. It is. On the other side is the way the, the phrase goes. Uh, thank you. Some, somebody with a quick wit uh, nailed that one. Uh, when, when I hear that saying, and I've heard it a lot, I always picture a farmer leaning up against his wooden fence, you know, with his straw hat on, and uh, he's looking over the fence, examining the condition of his neighbor's grass, he's, and then he's looking back at his grass, and and the the, ga- the gazing over the fence again at his neighbor's field, and what he sees there in his neighbor's field is nothing but lush, healthy, green growth. But you know, it's not just a rural thing; it's a very much a suburban thing too. As somebody who likes to mow grass, and if you didn't know that about me, I, I have a, a Forrest Gump streak in me that ministry is great. I love ministry. I love what God's called me to do. Ministry's never done. But when I cut grass for a couple of hours and then it's and it's nice and it looks good, I have pushed back the curse for just a little bit. And it is this fulfilling, it is just a blessing. I love to cut grass. Um, and, and so as someone who likes to mow, I confess sometimes I struggle with grass envy with my neighbors whose grass is healthier and better and not riddled with dandelions this time of year. Uh, but for many of us, it's not just the grass, right? It's 
Uh, it's anything and everything circumstantial in our lives that we wish we had more of or the better version of or fill in the blank for your context. But when you think about that farmer, what that farmer doesn't see and can't see from his vantage point are all the blemishes in his neighbor's field. He's looking at a distance, at something that appears to be better, but if he could just go over the fence and into the field and walk around a little bit, he'd see that it's really not better. Um, He's looking at it from a distance, and context is everything. You've heard the saying, the devil is in the details. Well, this occurrence of the grass is greener is something similar to that. Things that are big and far away from us tend to look really nice and clean and beautiful. And it's only when we get up close and personal that we begin to see all the flaws. I've always, I've always wanted that thing. I'm, I'm about to, hopefully this week, I'm going to buy a new mower. And, and it's going to be awesome for the first week. And then I'm going to do something. I'll put a ding in the paint or I'll hit a rock. Or I'll do something to it and it won't be the new mower that, you know, it just goes away. The newness wears off. And that's part of the lure of this world. Satan employs to distract us and move us from the place of being satisfied in the Lord in our hearts to being dissatisfied and discontent in the world. And so consequently, we have this idea that God is He's somehow been restrictive towards us and stingy towards us. He's withheld things from us. And so the grass always looks greener on the other side. It's an age-old trick uh, trick of the devil to trap us. Uh, You think about how many marriages, families, fortunes, and property have been sacrificed on the altar of discontentedness because people think somebody else's stuff would be better. It's just an age-old trick. And so this morning I want to invite you to take your focus off your status on earth and put it on your status before God because that is where we find true contentment. And the admonition we're going to wrestle with in the text is there precisely because we typically, even as blood-bought, born-again Christians, get tangled up in our efforts at upward mobility in this life. We think the grass is greener on the other side, somewhere other than where we're currently standing and, and, and our status before people makes no difference when it comes to our standing before God. And, and we abide in our earthly circumstances because God uh, calls us to abide in Him. So let's look at the text this morning. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 to 24. Paul says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who called, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when he's called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain. With God. So let's go back to 17. Let's look at this and unpack it just a little bit here. 
Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So uh, when, you, when you go back, you go all the way back to Acts 17, Paul was preaching at the Areopagus. And this is an important text related to what Paul just said. When you go back to Acts 17, uh, we see these words here recorded in, in the book of Acts. The God, Paul, Paul is preaching, and he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our offerings. And, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, now this is super important, this, this next part, having determined allotted times or periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. I want you to think about that for just a minute. What the scripture says, what Paul is saying is that God has appointed the, the place and the time in which you live in history to optimize the possibility that you might seek God. That is a good God. That is a gracious God. God put human beings at different times and in different places with an express purpose. And the purpose revealed in Acts 17, 27 is that people should seek him. He has a plan and a purpose for us, and he knows the most optimal conditions in which every individual might respond to the revelation they've already been given. That's what Romans 1, 18 to 32 is about. We respond to the light that God has already given us, and as we respond to the light, he's faithful to give more, right? And so we go on. Look at verse 18. <coughs> Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now, remember uh, that there were people that were preaching that in order to be a Christian, you had to first be circumcised. That group called the Judaizers uh, were, were, were around at this time, and they were making trouble for the early church, and they were still clinging to old covenant realities with national Israel as the primary means by which people needed to relate to God. And, and so um, that's all despite Jesus having died and risen and opened up a new and living way for us with a new covenant. They're still choosing to try to relate to God through the old covenant. And so you don't, Paul, Paul says they're missing the point. They're, they're totally missing the point. You don't have to worry about the ethnic or national boundaries that existed in the old covenant because the call of Jesus Christ is for all people in every culture on the planet. It's for everybody. And, and, and so the call says, follow Jesus right where you are. Follow Jesus right where you are, circumcised or uncircumcised. It doesn't matter to God. That is not the means by which we relate to him in the new covenant. And therefore, there's no need to change that physical reality or give it undue attention. 
So he's telling the church, don't make this an issue. It's a clear affirmation of the new covenant superseding the old covenant. And, and honestly, circumcision was a big deal. It was a mark of the old covenant with national Israel. But Jesus has opened up a new and better way. Read Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. And the writer of Hebrews says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that's much more excellent than, than the old, as the covenant that he mediates now is better since it's enacted on better promises. What were the promises of the old covenant? You're going to get land somewhere in the, in the Middle East. You're going to get a big chunk of land. Uh, God's going to bless you. If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you do this, you'll be cursed. What's the new covenant? By grace alone, through faith, you come, you're, you're saved, you get salvation not just not some land on, on earth, but heaven and glory forever and ever. It's, it's a better covenant, folks. He says, for that first covenant, had been, if it had been faultless, there had been no occasion to look for another one. It wasn't faultless. It wasn't the fullness of what God intended for humanity. You read on in Hebrews, you get down to chapter 10, verse 19, and, and the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place, whoa, well, 21st century Gentile ears are not picking up what, what, what the author of Hebrews is saying here. You don't get to go into the holy place, Gentile pagans. Only the high priest, only once a year, can go in. And only after much ritual and ceremony to make sure that that person is ritually clean to be able to go in or they die. I hear, hear the writer of Hebrews saying, you get to go into the most holy place. That's crazy. He says, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he's opened for us through the curtain. You remember that at at the death of Jesus, at the moment that he died on the cross, it says the temple veil was torn in two. He has opened a way for us. Um, That is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts having been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Man, what a blessing. What a blessing. And so we go on here in the text of 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 20. Paul continues, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Now, in our context today, we would not, we would not apply this verse as a prohibition on any kind of upward mobility in the workplace or even changing jobs or career paths. That's not what's in view here. Uh, there are two considerations here, I think, that are beneath Paul's statement. And the first one here is the question, is it lawful? Is it lawful? Um, yes, you can make more money as a drug kingpin. But that's not God's will for your life. And you're like, well, but I could draw little crosses on my dime bags and use the profits from my cocaine sales to support missionaries. It's like, no. No, no. Is it lawful? Sometimes you need to exaggerate the point to make the point, right? 
you, that you won't forget that one. I promise you. Is it properly available? Is the position open? Is it waiting to be filled? Or will you, by coming into this, displace someone else by taking that role from them? That's especially a big deal in Paul's context. They didn't have the, the capitalist transitioning to socialist system that we have um, where you could just go get a job somewhere at a big box store or whatever. You know, th- that wasn't the case. This would have been a very important consideration. Are you displacing someone? Is it lawful? Is it properly available? And so the admonition here is to find one's contentment in the Lord. That's the first priority. Find your contentment in Jesus. The result of that is the peace in your heart regarding your life and your circumstances. Not constantly jumping from thing to thing to thing, trying to find yourself, find your your center, find who you are. You know who you are because you know who you are in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul does make one express exception, and that would be gaining one's freedom from slavery or indentured servitude. And we can assume that what's in view for Paul is gospel ministry. That, that proclamation and ministry is the driving force with this exception when it comes to changing a person's circumstances because the slave or the servant is not able to move about freely not able to to speak freely or openly about the gospel, especially in that culture. So if you can go from being a bondservant or a slave to being free, that is advantageous for the gospel. And so he makes this exception for, for the purpose of spreading the gospel. But there's no preferred career path that makes you more acceptable to the Lord. You know that, right? Not even pastors. Not even pastors. We, we As Christians, we are all on a level playing field having been bought by the blood of Jesus, by grace alone through faith. Paul wants the Corinthians to worry less about their standing in this life and to serve Christ in and through whatever status he's called them to. If you're a butler at Downton Abbey, yes, I've watched it. (laughs) Stay there. Be be the best Jesus-loving christ honoring butler you could be. We have a landscape business. Do it to the glory of God. My dad, he worked my whole life in a factory that made glass. They took sand and ran it through blast furnaces to melt it into molten lava, ran it through form presses to make jars and Coke bottles. And he did did that for 40-something years. And he was great at it. And he retired and he was respected and loved by his coworkers. That's, that's honorable. That's honorable, right? So, so whatever you're doing, do it as unto the Lord. Verse 22, for he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, who, he who is free when he's called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Now, I don't know if you've seen this in the text yet, but there's, there's a word that keeps happening again and again and again. It's the word called. We see it all over the passage. In almost every verse, you'll see the word called. Now, sometimes we think of calling in, in terms of a vocation, what we do to make a living. We think of that as our calling. 
But the word calling, as Paul is using it, has much more to do with God's calling on our lives. And this calling invites us to trust in the Lord Jesus through faith. It's the call to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul makes the point that Jesus died to purchase us with his precious blood. We must never sell ourselves out to mere men. We are precious in his sight. God made all men equal in value. Therefore, let us not stoop towards something that is beneath those who are made in his image and likeness. The imago Dei, the the image of God in every human being, is the only salient reason why anyone can and should point to slavery and call it immoral and reprehensible. The only reason we can do that is because people are made in the image of God. Hey, listen, if we're just lucky mud plus time plus chance, you've got no moral argument about slavery. If we're just evolved animals, you've got no moral argument to deal with slavery. It's because we're made in the image of God. And I'll just add that this is equally true when it comes to the issue of abortion. These babies are human beings made in the image of God. So brothers, verse 24, in whatever condition each one was called, let him remain, let him, let, there let him remain with God. So choose to see your circumstances as a blessing from the Lord. This is a call, this, this whole section is a call to contentment in our hearts to learn to be content and at peace. And in order to do that, some of you are going to have to ponder on what could be and how bad things are for other people. So we live at such a level of, um, of opulence compared to the rest of the world and even much of history to this point. We, we live with so much stuff and so much ease. It's hard for us to see the reality of the rest of the world. And we, we, we're so accustomed to this standard of living that we get dissatisfied with it. When, when probably 90% of the world's population would literally kill to, to, to live like we live. And so we get disenfranchised and we get frustrated with our standard of living. And, and sometimes we need to think about what could be, not, not upward. We need to think about what could be. You could be worse off. You could be in a bad situation. If you need some help thinking about this, let me know. We'll take a day trip to the Everett Gospel Mission. We'll go down to Seattle and spend the afternoon. You can see firsthand what it would look like to, to spend time out on the streets and, and be homeless. And we interact with the, the, the addicts and the homeless. And, and, I, and I think having done that many times over many years, and I, I know that I regularly need those trips and those involvements because it resets my priorities and it resets my gauge for what contentment ought to be. We need that. We need that. Because everybody's always looking for the greener grass. And, and how much more content we would be if we, if we just regularly considered what difficulties and horrors other people live with every day. It would help us in our hearts. Um, so, so I'm not talking about, again, sub-Saharan Africa. I'm talking about right here in the U.S. of A. And Paul, when he wrote his letter to, first letter to Timothy, he described it like this. He said to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 6, Godliness with contentment, is great gain. 
If you've got godliness, if you're becoming more like Jesus in the character of who you are, and you can find contentment in your life, that is, that is tremendous gain. That's great gain. Paul says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And just finding your peace and your contentment in what you have already. Because we live in a culture that constantly tells us that enough is never enough. And the church buys into that lie. We buy into that. Um, just think how many of you have heard me say this multiple times. We, we talk about this often. I, I haven't talked about it in a while, so I thought it's time to bring it up again. But Hebrews 2 tells us Satan wields the power of death. And, and through the power of death, he keeps mankind locked in bondage to fear. That's the reality for everybody who doesn't know Jesus who hasn't been saved. <coughs> but we know, or we should know, that because Jesus has conquered death, we don't need to be afraid. Death has no hold on us. Fear should not grip our hearts when it comes to thinking about leaving this world. It's not a scary thing when you know that you're going to be in heaven and that it's, it's like the, uh, the ultimate level up. It's not, a, it's not like, well, I'm not sure like, where I'm going to go, what that's going to be like. No, Scripture is really clear if you've put your faith in Jesus. And in fact, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul, writing to the same church, says, you know, we're always of good courage. We know, here's why they're of good courage, even facing persecution and opposition and people who want to put them to death. He says, because we know that while we are at home in this body, that we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That would be better. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that everyone may receive what is due for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. Did you know? They said, Christians, we're not going to be judged. Yes, you are. You won't be judged for your sins. You'll be judged for your stewardship. You will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ for how you have stewarded the gospel and how you've taken the resources that God has entrusted to you and put them to work for the kingdom. We will all stand. Some of you need to take a deep breath because that's a scary thing. It doesn't mean you're going to hell. It doesn't mean you lose your salvation. But it's a big deal to stand before Jesus and answer for your stewardship. And we all will. We all will. So the point is that born-again Christians should not have any fear of death. We should not fear death. We know that we will be with Christ. But many Christians do. I'm watching this in the church in our day, and I'm seeing so many Christians just afraid. And you know how they're afraid because they're, they're just buying everything that the culture's tossing out. They're like, oh, that that will be my lifeline. That will be my rescue. That will be my life preserver. They're just so desperate to cling on to something that will give them hope. I'm just like, don't you know Jesus? Is he not the source of hope? What are you clinging to? But for so, so, many, so many Christians do this, not right. And my observation has been that it's largely because many Christians have stored up their treasures on earth, where rust and moth destroy and thieves break in and steal. The, the exact opposite of what Jesus said to do. And as a result, many Christians live with a high level of insecurity and anxiety 
related to this life and the disasters that could befall them at any moment, things that they can't stop, they have no control over, causes this anxiety. And, and so like you think about the impact of COVID in the church and the rampant fear that ensues in the church. It's not what God calls us to. It's not what he's called us to. And the root issue is that many Christians have not stored up their treasure in heaven. Jesus says that our hearts function according to where our treasure is. And if your treasure's here, and you put all your hope here, and, and I've, been, I've been feeding into that 401k for, for 30 years, and I want my kids to be able to go to college, and I want, those are not bad and evil things. But if that's your hope, it's not what God has called us to. And those who've stored up treasure on earth long for this life because that's where their treasure is. And they have much fear and trepidation about leaving it. And I think that's what we see in the church today. But instead of that fear, here's what Paul says to the Colossian church in chapter 3. Paul says to the Colossians, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let his peace be the thing that governs your heart, the, the, the place in, in, in the Jewish culture that's the center of your feelings and emotions and thoughts. Let it, let it govern that. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What do we do this morning? We did that. We sang together with thankfulness in your hearts towards God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, to make a living, to earn money, whatever you do, give thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to the Father through Him. Man, did you notice the relationship? between giving thanks and experiencing peace. It's right there in the text. It's right there in Colossians 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. There is a relationship, an inextricable link between being thankful, cultivating gratitude, and experiencing peace. It's almost like God designed the two to go hand in hand. I don't know. Um, having and expressing gratitude and thankfulness is the doorway to being content. What does the psalmist say? I will enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. That's right. You want to get close to God? You want to come into the presence of God? Express your gratitude. That's how you get there, right? Our contentment, our contentment is not based on our circumstances, men and women. It's not based on our circumstances. Hebrews 13, verse 5, is even more clear than the Colossians passage we just read. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Keep your life free, free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. <laughs> well, what is the counterweight? To offset the weight of the world's thinking and the world's pressure, it's the Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You trust his promise. 
So, so, so keep your life free from the love of money. That'll get you tangled up. It doesn't mean you can't have money. It doesn't mean you can't steward your resources well. It doesn't mean you can't be generous. Don't, don't get tangled up from the, in the love of money. Be content with what you have, and you can rest in the Lord. You can rest in the Lord because he said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So what I want to do with the little bit of time that remains this morning is just cast vision for you for what's to come. <coughs> because all this time, what I've essentially been saying is the grass is not greener on the other side. But that's not entirely true. It's not entirely true. Scripture says that what is coming in our collective future as the church is greener and better than anything you have ever known. It's green. It's mega green. I don't know how to say it more than, it's, it's, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. Um, in fact, you've, you've never really seen green grass before. When you see the green grass on the other side, you will be like, that wasn't even green. It's going to be so much better. Let me explain. So, so you spend the rest of your natural life on earth pursuing and embracing contentment in the Lord. Good on you. You should. And as a byproduct, you attain a level of contentment with your station in life. Godliness becomes the goal, not the accumulation of stuff. And you find that all your stuff is just a means to fulfill the Great Commission and bring people into the kingdom of God. It's almost like Jesus said that or something. And then you die. And then you die. Don't be shocked. Ten out of ten people do it. But what happens next? What happens next? Well, as it turns out, the grass is greener in the restored creation. More on that in just a minute. But if you want to read up on the restored creation, the taking the earth back to its Edenic state. Read Isaiah 64, 65, and 66. And Isaiah 65, 25, just as an excerpt, the wolf and the lamb will graze together. Wolves graze? They will. They won't be killing and eating meat. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. We're going back. To Eden. There will be a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth in a restored Edenic state. God promises this in his word. And, and maybe you're sitting there going, I've never heard this before. This is a little weird. Is this really in the Bible? Yeah, it's in the Bible. Uh, and, and why a thousand years? Well, because that's part of the messianic promise and the prophecies of the Old Testament. The Messiah is going to reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And it will be a millennium of rest and restoration. And as I read the scriptures, I see that six days they labor, God says, and on the seventh day, according to God's direction, we're supposed to what? Rest, Sabbath. So also, if you simply read the Bible for what it says, we should be wrapping up about 6,000 years of life on this planet at this point and entering into a seventh 1,000-year period. Now, the reign and rule of Christ from Jerusalem over the nations of the earth is detailed Psalm 2, if you want to read later, Isaiah 9, other places in Scripture, feel free to message me or email me. I'll, I'll send you links. And we are promised to be in our glorified bodies. And when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we will be talking about that. It's, it's incredible. It's incredible. You hurt and ache 
now. If you're under 30, probably not. Just don't, just, just listen. You guys just listen, right? But man, just, oh, I just want, I want to be able to like, at this point, like if I, if I had to chase the dog, I, I would go about 10 steps and I'd be done. I'm not, I, th- these knees are not running knees anymore. Or you're going to get new bodies, new bodies, glorified bodies. And we'll talk about that. And we'll reign and rule with Jesus on the earth for a thousand years. That's promised to us in Psalm 2, but it doesn't end there. In fact, it never ends. Scripture says there's another rebellion coming at the end of those thousand years as Satan is loosed from the bottomless pit. What God's doing is proving positive that man needs a new heart in order to overcome sin, not just optimal circumstances, right? And that rebellion is put down. And then Scripture says that the heavens and earth are destroyed by fire. Here's what we're told in Scripture. Why are we going through all this future eschatology? Because it's part of understanding what God has in store for us, and it brings us to a place of contentment now. We know what's coming. We're not afraid of the future. Listen to this. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and all the former things shall not be remembered or even come into mind. In 2 Peter 3, Peter says, Since all these things are to be thus dissolved, meaning the whole creation, what sort of people ought you to be living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and, get this, hastening, hastening the coming of the day of God? How do we hasten the coming of the day of God? Share the gospel. You want to hasten the coming of God? Share the gospel the gospel. He says, we're waiting for and hastening the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies, the planets, the stars, all of it will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Oh, I got to give you one more. Revelation 21. (laughs) Revelation 21, 1 through 4. John's just trying to make sense of what he's seeing. He's just trying to find words to put to what he's seeing. He says, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I'm like, I I like the beach, Lord. What are you doing? (laughs) I don't know. It's going to be better. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be any mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen. You think you can find some contentment right now as we wait for that? Keep it in mind, keep it before you all the time. That is our destination, it's where we're going. You're going to level up, men and women of God. The grass is infinitely greener in the life to come. Scripture says, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Your imagination can't get you there. It's not sufficient. What God has in store for us is infinitely better. 
So take your focus off your status here on earth and put your focus on your status before the one true and living God. The admonition we're, admonition we're wrestling with in the text is there precisely because we get tangled up in our efforts at upward mobility and status in this life. We think the grass is greener on the other side, somewhere other than where we're standing, but our status before people makes no difference when it comes to our status before the living God. So lay down your ambitions, your hopes, your plans, and let Jesus run the show. You'll find contentment and peace and one heck of a retirement plan. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness and grace, your love for us. We want to be faithful stewards of all that you've entrusted to us. Lord, would you take these words, these truths from your word and drive them deep down in our hearts that we would be a people of contentment, a people who expectantly await your coming in the knowledge, partial knowledge, of what you have in store for us. We, eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard. We, we haven't even conceived of all that you have in store for us in the life to come. But we receive it and we believe it in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So take your focus off yourself and off your status and put it on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he thinks about you and how he sees you. And, and, and so we think when you're tempted to think the grass is greener on the other side somewhere other than when you're standing, remember what Jesus has in store for us as his people. And run the race with endurance and give Jesus your first and your best regardless of your circumstances or your station in life. Lay down your ambitions your hopes, your plans, and follow Jesus with all of your heart. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.